Hey, everyone. Uh, if you're in the back row and there's a kid walking by and you can give him a fist bump, let's start there. Just so the kids know, we are excited they're here. Fist bumps all around. Yes, I love it. Okay. With that said, my name's Tony. I, I have just the joy of being able to just to be here with you guys. I, I have the joy of being able to look at these scriptures and share about them. It's just a real pleasure. Also want to let you know, uh, uh, you know, as a church in PG, uh, you know, we are not everywhere in the world, but we want to be responsive to things that are happening in the world. Uh, so our giving team is setting aside a chunk of money to deal with disaster relief in Ukraine. Uh, and if you would like to add some funds to that amount that we're sending. Uh, as you give, you can just write Ukraine in the note box and we'll know that that will be looped into all the money that we are sending for disaster relief stuff. Uh, just throwing that out there if you want to participate. Now, a couple things. We're gonna talk about something today that I think almost everyone has some familiarity with. There's this story in the Old Testament that all my kids like because it's this epic showdown between David and Goliath. Is anyone familiar with that story? Right, like whether you went to church, didn't go to church, like this is just a part of like people riff on this all the time, David versus Goliath. And what I want you to do is actually try and set aside some of the assumptions about what you think this story is about. Full disclosure, when I sort of signed myself up to teach on this one, it was like, huh, I don't really want to teach about David and Goliath because everyone knows this story. True confession, though, the more I studied it, the more I realized, wow, there's so much here that I had no idea about. So if you can, set aside your assumptions and hear this story. Our story begins with, this, with the Philistines. They're a common enemy of Israel in 1 Samuel, and they're gathering for battle. Now, in the ancient world, it was actually pretty common for two heroes to fight a battle instead of thousands. This is fairly common in that day. So it shouldn't surprise us that the Philistines present a hero or a champion to fight on their behalf. Verse 4 Chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. Then a champion came forward from the army encampment of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath. His height was six cubits and a span. Now, I've always wondered, you watch, look at these children's Bibles, whatever, and you think, six cubits and a span, what does that even mean? In feet, that would be about nine feet, nine inches. Uh, in perspective, the Guinness Book of World Records, the tallest person is this American named Robert Wadlow, and he was recorded at 11, or eight feet, 11 inches, point one. I don't know what that is. 11 inches, dot one. I don't know what that is. I'll let the math people, you figure it out. Okay. The tallest person alive reigning, living right now is Sultan Kusin from Turkey, who's 8'3". Uh, but actually, if you go back in history, we have skeletons. We have found, archaeologists have found skeletons of folks that are over nine feet tall in the ancient Near East from around this time. Now, as the text unfolds, we realize there is a giant, or at least a very large man. 
who is there. But it also, it's not even just that he's big. He also has the best weapons and technology. The text says he has a bronze helmet, a bronze scale armor, a bronze saber, and an iron spear. Now, sometimes we just read over this and we're like, okay, yeah, he's got weapons. But that's actually to miss something really important. See, the Philistines actually controlled metal production at this time in the ancient Near East. And this had huge impacts on warfare. Actually, if you go back to chapter 13, there's this little detail that we probably skip over that says, Saul and Jonathan are the only people who have swords in Israel's army. Why? The Philistines control all weapons technology. So Israel's coming up with a bunch of wood with a few people with spears, and you have this giant with all the best tech coming out to challenge them one-on-one, mano-a-mano, hero versus hero, champion versus champion. And it's at this point, as this giant, the techie giant, stands up there, that then you have this shift to another character. It's almost like a reintroduction of David, because in the previous chapter, he's already anointed by David to be the future king. This is important, right? He's the eighth kid. He's the runt. He's in the fields. He's sort of forgotten. He comes forth. Samuel anoints him, the future king of Israel. And now it's almost like you have a character reintroduction. Verse 12, now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah, the man whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. And Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. The three older sons of Jesse had followed Saul into battle, and the names of his three sons who had gone into battle were Eliab, the firstborn, the second to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shamash. So David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. And the Philistine came forward morning and evening and took his stand for 40 days. All right, so what is the author trying to communicate? A few things. So Jesse's old. That's why he's not going to the front. That's why he's not fighting in this battle. But even though David, in the last chapter, has been anointed the future king of Israel, this is going to be the guy, the leading prophet, the leading religious figure has said, you are going to be the guy. Even though Samuel has said this, notice that three of David's older brothers have, quote-unquote, followed Saul. David's older brothers, they're not following the future king. They're following the current king. Subtext. All is not well in the family of David. Remember Eliab? He comes out and Samuel says, man, that guy is tall. He's got big shoulders. That dude's probably ripped. He looks like everything. Samuel's like, yes! And God's like, no, no, no. Next, the three older brothers have been passed up. Also in the previous chapter, Saul has basically hired David to come and play music for him at his house. So David is going back and forth Right? He's working two jobs. He's tending the sheep at his family's house. And then he's working part-time at the king's house playing music. Now Saul, he's been at the battlefront for 40 days now. 
So David hasn't been playing music. He's been focusing on his single occupation of tending sheep. And I think Jesse thinks, well, David's got plenty of time now. He's not doing the part-time thing. He's not working overtime. He's not going back and forth. So he, he gives his son some roasted grain, 10 loaves of bread, and says, hey, go take these to your brothers at the battlefield. And he gives them this chunk of cheese, and he's like, hey, and take this to the commander, right? Because he wants to curry favor with the guy in charge. So David wakes up early. He finds someone else to watch the sheep, right, to cover his shift in the fields. And he grabs the bread and the cheese, goes to the front, and when he arrives, Goliath comes out. And the text says that he hears Goliath, and David gets sidetracked, right? He doesn't deliver the bread and the cheese as he's supposed to. Instead, he leaves it with the keeper of supplies, verse 22, and he hopes to go see what's happening with Goliath. What's interesting is the text says that the men of Israel heard Goliath's taunt, verse 24, and they fled from him and were very fearful. Right? And in their fear, they start to chat among themselves about this reward, about whoever wins this one-on-one -on -one battle with Goliath. Right? They start chatting with each other about maybe in the midst of our fear what we could get. Am I dropping stuff? There we go. Just leave it. doesn't really matter. Just don't look. That's a cheat sheet. They start chatting among themselves about a reward. Have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he's coming up to defy Israel. And it will be the king. Will make him the, oh, and it will be that the king will make the man who kills him wealthy with great riches. And give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Basically, whoever marry, or defeats Goliath will get to marry the king's daughter going to be crazy wealthy, right? Modern terms. You beat this guy, private jet, mansion, regular hangouts with LeBron and Steph. You get to hang out with Ronaldo, Jeff Bezos, whoever. You are with the rich, the famous, the movers, and the shakers. And what's important is that David hears about this reward. And hearing it, he wants to know more. He asks the guy next to him, verse 26, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and rids Israel of the disgrace? I want to know more about this. Now his older brother is standing there, Eliab, the one who was passed over, the one who looked really good. Eliab hears David asking about the reward and he's not happy. In fact, it says this, Eliab's anger burned against David, verse 28. And then he goes on a bit of a rant. To David, he says, why is it that you have come down? And with whom have you left those sheep in the wilderness? I myself know your insolence, the wickedness of your heart. For you have come down in order to see the battle. You're just a voyeur. Now, on one level, let's be honest. Like, Iliapsi's a little unfair here, right? Like, it's like, 
Come on, man. He didn't abandon the sheep, actually. He found someone to cover his part-time shift. Right? And he came to the battle at his father's request. Right? Not just to see the battle. And we also know Eliab's accusing David's heart of being wrong. But in the last chapter, remember what God says. He actually isn't looking at Eliab's strength. God looks at the heart. And he sees something in David that he likes. But, with that said, it is also true that David did abandon the supplies he was meant to bring to the commander and his brothers because he heard of Goliath and wanted to see what was happening. It's also true that the first thing David says when he gets there is about the reward Right? He wants to hang out with the rich and famous. He wants the private jet. It's also true that when you read texts in the scripture, there is a design pattern. These stories are not just randomly thrown together. They're intentionally constructed. So the first time you read through this story, you think, man, Eliab, what a jerk. But then as you get farther in the story, you'll see some words that repeat in this story later in 2 Samuel. I want to highlight them here. So in 1 Samuel 17, we have a number of words that repeat. See, right? Battle. Sheep. Few. Evil. Burned with anger. Those are all in our text today. Now as we keep going... The author is meant for us to now look at another text. Because when you get to 2 Samuel 11 and 12, which is when David commits adultery with Bathsheba and murders her husband, the exact same words repeat. See, battle, sheep, few, evil, in the exact expression, burned with anger. What the author is trying to signal is the first time through, you think, yeah, what is this? So unfair. Then you get to David Bathsheba. You see the exact same words. Now you come back to David and Goliath and you think, maybe Eliab's on to something. The way we're meant to read these narratives is as a whole, right? So that we can see the way they're connected. Right? So the first time you read it, you think, yeah, I have tons of empathy for David. He says in verse 29, what have I done now? Clearly, there's a pattern here of accusation. Wasn't it just a question? Like, who hasn't said that when they've been accused at some point? What did I do now? <laughs> Every husband on earth, right? <laughs> and yet, notice what he does immediately after he asks this question. He asked about the reward again. Verse 30. Then he turned away from him, Eliab, to another and said the same thing. So who gets to hang out with LeBron? Wait, wait. So who gets the reward? And the people replied with the same words as before. He ditches the stuff, asks about the reward, gets burned by his brother, and then asks about the reward again. The author's trying to show us, right, 
that David isn't this perfect little boy coming up to the front. There is more going on here. But this doesn't mean that David's all bad either, right? Don't we sometimes in our world, especially with like Twitter, people come up with like really sort of short catchphrases to like label a person as either good or bad and then they're like forever caricatured as like that one line. Right? And sometimes we read the Bible this way. David's good. This person's bad. But we see here David's a complex, imperfect character. Right? David doesn't just only care about the reward. This is clear in how he actually frames Goliath's defiance, right? Goliath thinks that he's defying the army of Israel. But this isn't how David sees it. David says that Goliath is defying, verse 26, the armies of the living God. Right? The men at the battlefield are afraid, but David's reaction is different. Yeah, sure, he seems interested in the reward he does also, you know, chuck his responsibilities and run to the front a little bit. But he also sees this as a challenge, right, to God and his power and his might. Right, this kind of gives us a, theo- a window into David's theology of life and maybe why he's less afraid. Right, David knows that defying a human army is one thing, But defying God, that's just foolish. It's best, David knows, to side with God in any battle. And apparently, David's courage is getting noticed a little bit. Saul, the king, sends for him. And it's when he gets to the king's presence, like, man, he, like, makes the courage obvious. This is what he says. May no one's heart fail on account of him Goliath, your servant will go fight this Philistine. But Saul said to David, uh, you're not able to go and to against this Philistine to fight him, for you were only a youth while he has been a warrior since his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a sheep from the flock. I went out after it and attacked it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it rose up against me, I grabbed it by its mane and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear and this uncircumcised Philistine. We'll be like one of them since he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will save me from the hand of of the Philistine. Now, as you read this, right, you can tell, like, David's faith is super clear. The guy is full of courage. But there's actually a lot more going on than you might first think. First, notice how David talks about his defense against lions and bears. He essentially says, what I'm going to do, what I've done, is I grab him and I wrestle him to the ground. And that's what I'm going to do with Goliath. I'm going to grab him and I'm going to wrestle him to the ground. 
you know, all five foot two of him at this point. Notice what he doesn't say. There's nothing about a sling here. Right, as we get farther into the story, we'll know David brings a sling into battle. Now, just so you know, a little context here, a sling. I think I have an image of it. Um, this is a sort of an ancient sling. The idea is you'd put a rock in like a leather pouch or something like that. It's attached to rope and you swing it, right? Like this, something like this. If you have any professional slingers here, feel free to correct me. Swing it, and then you throw it, and the rock sails. But expert slingers, I mean, this is kind of crazy, could throw a rock up to or more than 100 miles an hour. Right? This isn't some, like, 12-year-old out there trying to skip rocks. 100 miles an hour. Like, as fast as the fastest baseball pitchers in the major leagues. But David doesn't say anything about this. Clue one. Seems to suggest that he's going to wrestle Goliath like he did those bears. He's going to grab him, pull him to the ground. This is important because there's certain rules to ancient combat. So when an infantry man challenges a hero from the other side, there's an expectation that they're going to send out an infantry to fight this guy, right? Goliath comes out, he's decked out in his sword and stuff, and he expects someone from Israel's infantry to come and fight. Make sense? Okay. One layer down. In the ancient world, there are three sort of divisions in the army. One, there's cavalry. Two, there's infantry. Three, there is artillery. Cavalry consists of guys, soldiers on horses or maybe with chariots. Infantry are guys with swords and armor. Artillery are archers and slingers. And actually some of the best slingers come from the tribe of Benjamin, where David comes from. Now this is where it gets interesting. Can I have a volunteer, someone who knows how to play rock, paper, scissors? All right, come on up. Yeah, you raised your hand. You're up here now. Come on. All right, so you're familiar with rock, paper, scissors? Okay, let's play. So, so they can see you. Ready? Don't show them what you're going to do. Ready? Rock. Paper, scissors. Okay, who wins? Rock wins, right? Let's play again. I won. If I win all these, this is going to be dangerous. All right, ready? Rock, paper, scissors. Ooh, tie. Okay. Paper versus paper is a tie. Ready? Rock, paper, scissors. Oh, man. Just checking. Are they feeding you information? Okay. Ready? Rock, paper, scissors. So what wins there? You win, right? Rock beats scissors, correct? Okay, well, one more. Rock, paper, scissors. Okay, what happens here? I'm watching you guys. Thank you very much for your time. All right. So what this tells us, right? Rock always beats scissors. 
Paper always beats rock, correct? Scissors always beats paper. Now, you're like, that was an interesting aside. What does that have to do with anything? Well, one scholar named Baruch Harpin has suggested that ancient warfare mirrors rock, paper, scissors. So, infantry always beats cavalry. Slingers always beat infantry. Cavalry always beats the slingers or the artillery. Why is this important? David's plan is starting to become clear. See, he tries to convince Saul that he's going to wrestle Goliath. Infantry versus infantry, right? We did paper versus paper. What happened? It's equal. Everyone is assuming someone is going to come out with a stick or a spear and try and beat Goliath in hand-to-hand combat, that is the assumption of ancient warfare. That is why David emphasizes wrestling Goliath. But David was never planning on wrestling Goliath. He had a sling. He was planning on defeating Goliath with a sling, which wins like paper over rock every time. And David does convince Saul. And Saul thinks the least he can do is share his armor with David. Why? Because it's infantry versus infantry. He's giving him his stuff so that he can fight Goliath the way everyone expects him to fight. But what does David say? No thanks. One, it doesn't fit. But two, he's not planning on fighting him in the expected way. He tells Saul, the Lord who saved me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will save me from the hand of this Philistine. David's not afraid like everyone else. One, he trusts in God. Two, he is going to hit Goliath below the belt. Verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. And put them in his shepherd's bag, which he had, that is, in his shepherd's pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Notice what David does here. He holds his staff in one hand, likely to signal to Goliath, here I come. We don't have swords, but we have wood. They don't control metal production. So he grabs it, and he starts running out. He has his sling ready, but he's signaling to Goliath, I'm coming to do one-on-one combat. And his plan works, because what does Goliath say? Verse 43, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? All he sees is the staff, because he assumes David is going to play by the assumed rules. Infantry versus infantry, paper versus paper, you get the idea. And David has this pretty crazy, like, on your feet replies. He says this, you come at me with a sword, right? A spear and a saber. I come at you in the name of the Lord of the armies, the God of the armies of Israel, 
whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I will strike you and remove your head from you. Gets a bit gruesome. Then I will give the dead bodies of the army of this Philistine to the birds of the sky and the wild animals of the earth so that all the earth knows that there is a God in Israel, right? All the earth, the birds and the wild animals because they're having lunch. And that this entire assembly may know the Lord does not save by sword or by sphere. He doesn't say anything about sling anyway. For the battle is the Lord's and he will hand you over to us. David's like, yeah, sure, right? You are enormous, right? You're like Andre the Giant, and you have the best technology. But what's that, right? I have God on my side. The battle is the Lord's. Goliath, you might be bigger and stronger, but you're wrong to think you're fighting a boy. You're fighting God. Dramatic pause. (laughs) David runs at Goliath. It's at this point as he's running, he drops the spear. Now pretense is over. He drops the spear and suddenly Goliath knows that David is not coming to fight him, right? One to one, infantry to infantry. At this point, all the onlookers also realize What is happening? The tables have just turned. Before David has thrown a single stone, they know Goliath is in trouble. Slingers beat infantry like rocks beat scissors. But still, David does have to be a good shot. He picked five stones, not one, in case he missed. But some of the best slingers come out of Benjamin. And David slings this rock at like 100 miles an hour. And Goliath is hit once in the forehead, and he's dead. Interesting, what happens next is David cuts off his head. But then he puts the head in Jerusalem. It's interesting because the Jebusites ruled Jerusalem at this time. This is not actually Israel's territory. And this may be another glimpse of David's ambition. Because the first thing that David does when he becomes king is make Jerusalem his capital. 2 Kings 5. All right. Now, what do we do with this story? The story that I think all of us are familiar with and now some of us are like, that was a little different. I think two things. First is this. God partners with imperfect people. So when we look closely at this story, it becomes clear that David is this really complex, imperfect person. He sort of obeys his dad. He brings provisions to the battle, but he doesn't really take them where they're supposed to go. He shows real preoccupation with the reward and what he can get out of it. He seems to misrepresent his intentions with Saul, that he's going to wrestle Goliath and not kill him with a sling. 
He breaks the rules of combat by fighting essentially like he's bringing a gun into a knife fight. And on top of it off, he puts Goliath's head in Jerusalem, which is not even their capital, but likely where he's planning to make his capital because now he's been anointed king. And he's thinking about what his future is going to be like. And yet, God partners with him. And even when we get to 2 Samuel 11 and 12, when he commits adultery with Bathsheba and murders her husband, God will still partner with David. And yet, at least in my experience, I think many of us feel like we need to be perfect in this place. When we think about church, we feel like, man, I need to get my act together so I can be a part. So often we discount ourselves from participation in ministry because, you know, we're just too broken or too sinful or too messed up to participate. But here's David, imperfect, complex, and actually, when you sort of stand back and look at the arc of the stories in the scripture, you see that actually David is the norm, not the exception. Right? Abraham, the father of faith, essentially like gives his wife away to these rulers in order to protect himself. Moses murders someone. Jacob lies and deceives at every turn of his life. And yet all these people also have these beautiful moments of faith. My guess is, probably like you and me, there are moments when we do really faithful things. And there are moments when we really don't. And yet time and time again, as a pastor, I see people discounting themselves from participating in God's kingdom, the church, because we're complex, because we're imperfect. As I've thought about it and met with lots and lots of people, I feel like most of us, if we slow down, have a narrative that we tell ourselves of why God could never really love us. Most of us have thoughts, a pre-recorded message, a narrative that we tell ourselves of why we really can't participate. I fill in the blank for yourself, right? God could never really love me because what pops into your brain? Something you did? Maybe something that was done to you? I could never really participate in God's kingdom because what's the narrative you tell yourself? What's that pre-recorded message that you often say to yourself to discount yourself from participating? As we lean into this story this week, I would invite you, spend some time with your own thoughts. What are those pre-recorded messages, those stories, those thoughts you tell yourself for one, why God could never love you, and two, for why you really can't participate. Identify them. And this is why. 
I think that we are in a spiritual battle all the time and the one thing that our enemy wants is to emphasize all the reasons why God couldn't love you or why you can't participate. And he wants to trick you into believing that that is the truth. But at its core, it is a lie straight from the pit of hell. But we allow ourselves to be shackled. We allow ourselves to be discounted. Does that mean we're perfect? No. We are imperfect, complex characters that are loved by God and invited to participate in his kingdom. The second thing I want to emphasize this morning is that right, this story is not just about David's flaws. He's also filled with faith. In fact, what seems to make David so unique in this story is his faith-filled perspective. On multiple occasions, right, David's faith-filled perspective sets him apart. The men of Israel cower in fear <coughs> before Goliath, right? And they seem to view the scene through their fear. They run away. They hide. David hears Goliath shouts as defying the armies of the living God. He seems to see things that most of these other guys are not seeing. He sees a foolish creature in Goliath standing up to the creator God. And even right before his fight with Goliath, he shouts, the battle is the Lord's. And he will hand you over to us. Yes, David is willing to break the rules of combat. Certainly, he is sneaky. But he also knows that even with his sling, the battle is not his, right? It's God's. He has this faith-filled perspective that shapes his entire approach to his confrontation with Goliath. Reading the story, I just wondered, how do you do that? Who here wouldn't want to live with a little less fear? (laughs) Who here wouldn't want on some level to not see the world through your anxiety, through your fear, through your self-doubt? And I think what this text shows us is this faith-filled perspective really makes a difference in everyday life. So I spent some time this week trying to figure out, so how do we cultivate it? How do we become a people who view life through this faith-filled perspective rather than filtered through our fear? And God brought someone into my path this week who I think provided a window. This individual is older. Uh, This individual is going through a significant health crisis and a really, really hard season. This person has started thinking about death more started thinking about what does it look like to be faithful in the midst of debilitating disease. And we're sitting outside in the sun on a lovely winter day in PG at a picnic table, and this person starts talking about how these scriptures have brought them so much faith and encouragement and buoyancy in the midst of a very scary time. 
But this person doesn't pull out a Bible and, hey, Tony, can you grab a Bible from inside so I can read it to you? This person doesn't flip up their phone and search and be like, let me find that verse. This person just starts speaking scriptures. Verse after verse after verse. The Bible is flowing out of them. And every time they get to this moment in the day when they're like, I am exhausted and I don't want to go on, the Bible flows out of them. You see, they've memorized the Bible and parts of it. So that when these moments of fear, these moments that they're just daunted and afraid, they don't think, let me go find that Bible verse. The Bible is in them and comes out. Dallas Willard once wrote, the simplest and most effective way to mind, of mind renewal in Christ is memorization of Scripture. The human mind is quite small and limited in terms of what can be consciously, what can consciously occupy it. But we have some choice as to what is present there. We must choose well. See, we can't always control our emotions. We can't always control our thoughts and where they go. But we can control, to a large degree, what we decide to put in our minds. Right? Do we just surf social media, putting in this comparisons, reinforcing those narratives that we are not enough? Reinforcing all these messages that tell us, yeah, yeah, you really got to get your act together. You really don't measure up. Or do we put things in our mind that remind us of a faith-filled perspective so that when these hard moments come, the Bible flows out of us, grounding us in the goodness of God, the love of God, the faithfulness of God to be with us no matter what happens in our everyday life. Jesus enters the world, he starts his ministry, the first thing that happens, he's removed out of the wilderness, and Satan comes. And in the first century, they don't carry Bibles. The Bible is written in scrolls. And Satan says, all these things to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't say, hey, give me a second, let me go back to the temple, I know there's a verse on that. He doesn't pull out the scroll of Isaiah, unwind it, uh, there it is. Jesus has memorized the text so that when that moment happens in the wilderness, the Bible flows out of him. I am called to trust in the Lord alone. Right, we don't, I, I often was prejudiced against Bible memorization, full disclosure, because I felt like it was used as a tool to win at Bible trivia. <laughs> right? You're better because you've memorized this. Rock on, you know, a little ice cream party or whatever. <laughs> the reason we memorize the Bible is so that when life gets hard, our perspective is filled with the truth of the Scriptures, not the narrative of our culture, not the curses that have been said over us, not the ways that we discount ourselves, we memorize the Bible so that when that happens, we know there is a God in this world who loves us, 
and rescues us so that we remember that we are sinners, that we are imperfect people, that we do need to repent and turn back to the loving Father who gives all so that we can be rescued and live lives that are flourishing. As I was sort of thinking and praying this week, I was wondering, you know, so what does that mean? You know, do we memorize David's speech about, like, the birds and the carry-on, you know, carrying away the flesh so that all the world knows? Like, that was an option. That was option on the table. <laughs> the more I thought about it, though, what if we just started with a classic this Lent? What if we all committed to memorizing the 23rd Psalm? The Lord is my shepherd. And I'm not going to fear. Why? Because God is with me. God's going to take care of me. He's going to lead me to still waters. He's going to restore my soul. I don't restore my own soul. God is the shepherd who restores the soul. And the 23rd Psalm acknowledges there are moments when we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Life is not always easy. But it's okay. Why? Because God is with me and he's going to comfort me. The 23rd Psalm reminds us, yeah, there are enemies in life. But God prepares a table for me. God creates belonging. That's what the table is, right? That's where people gather in family. God brings the lonely into families is what the psalmist says. 23rd Psalm, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I might not rock it, but God's goodness and mercy will follow me even when I wander, even when I'm interested in the reward, even when I'm ambitious, even when I'm deceitful, like David. I want to encourage you, memorize this text, Psalm 23. And as we enter worship, I want to invite the worship team up. I just want us to say this psalm together as we enter worship. To memorialize that God is our shepherd, right? that we are imperfect and we live in an imperfect world. And yet, God chooses to partner with us. God wants to restore your soul today, whether you thought of him all week or not. God wants to restore your soul today. God will follow you with his goodness and mercy, whether you care a lick about him or not. He is the shepherd. And if you be open, I just invite you to say this psalm with me. And I want you to say it as a reminder of who God is and what life is like as we enter worship. Begin with me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff will comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Jesus, we come before you. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And God, I just, I just ask, the text say, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will convict us. And I just pray, God, that you would reveal those narratives, God, that we use to discount ourselves. Just bring them to mind right now. I'm too, I'm too dumb. I did this this week. just pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would take those narratives, those pre-recorded messages, those thoughts captive, Jesus. You would break the power of those lies in our life which disconnect us from you. You would break the power of those lies that keep us on the sideline of the kingdom watching, thinking, if only I could play. God, break the power of those lies. And God, give us, give us motivation to memorize Psalm 23 that we could remember who you are because life is not always easy. And sometimes we need to remember that you are with us even in the valley of the shadow of death, even in a world with enemies that are mean and nasty and evil. You prepare a table for us. Even though, God, we like wandering sheep go our own way, you follow us. You see us. Let's stand. And as we sing this song, may it be a prayer that God would lead us and guide us.